My work uh, on this little planet involves canvassing. Have any of you ever done the literature work, gone door to door, selling Adventist books? I see the hands of four or five that have done that. Uh, and that work that I was doing, even since I was a teenager, recently has been expanding to other parts of the planet. In Indonesia right now, we have a group of nearly 30 canvassers. And uh, do you know the primary religion in Indonesia? Are any of you familiar with that nation? Yeah. It's mostly yeah, followers of the religion of Islam. That's exactly what's going on there. In Java especially, where you have more than half the population in that, that island, in the center of that island, Amazing Facts has a, an evangelism training school. And those students are going door to door, selling The Great Controversy. The Great Controversy is a great book for uh, Muslims. The first chapter is the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, they like it. And it talks about getting ready for the day of judgment. So you can pray for your fellow workers there in Indonesia and the work that they're doing. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, there lived a, uh, a man named E.P. Daniels. This is not A.G. Daniels. You might, if you've ever studied Adventist history, learned about someone named A.G. Daniels, who was our conference president at the turn of the, well, the year 1900. But E.P. Daniels was uh, well-known earlier, in 1885, and he led out in a revival in Fresno. I suppose that's about, I'm guessing, uh, 300 miles south of here. I have no, really, I, I didn't look at a map. Closer or further? 700 miles? That's a long ways. So about 700 miles south of here in Fresno, E.P. Daniels was leading out in a revival, and there were some men who were from the conference office nearby. I think you have a conference office nearby here. Uh, we passed it, I mean, not too near, but we passed it on the way here this morning. And at, at that conference office, you had uh, some men whose names you might know. Have you heard the name J.N. Loughborough? Yes, sir. Uh, the great second advent movement. Um, J.H. Wagner, the father of E.J. Wagner. J.H. Wagner has some interesting distinction in our church history. He was one of the very first men to join the Seventh-day Adventist movement after the Great Disappointment in 1844, when the brethren believed that there was no more opportunity for sinners to be saved. And here was a sinner who wanted to come. And the brethren didn't know how to relate to him, but eventually they let him in. That was J.H. Wagner. And then J.H. Wagner's son, E.J. Wagner, more famous now. When you, hear the, when you hear in Adventist history the name Wagner without any other qualifier, they almost always mean the son. J.H. Wagner, as in if you heard the terms Wagner and Jones or Jones and Wagner. And then A.T. Jones himself, the other one of that duo, those men worked in the office there near Fresno. They didn't think very highly of E.P. Daniels. And let me tell you why. I mean, I can't tell you all the reasons why, but I can tell you some of the reasons why. E.P. Daniels wasn't good at money. And I won't ask to see how many of you here aren't good at handling money, but E.P. Daniels wasn't. As a minister of the gospel in the Adventist church, he went into debt. 
And he ended up in significant debt, so significant that he resigned his position as a minister so he could do some sort of secular work, earn more money, and pay off his debts. And when he was in that secular employment, earning some money, he got into investments, investing in mines and in lands. And he, you know, when you're into investing, you can make some money investing your own money, but where you really make it is if you invest other people's money. And that's also where you make it just in case it doesn't work out, because then what you lose is other people's money. And so if you know how to win friends and influence people, investments can really be a winner for you and a loser for them. E.P. Daniels was an influential man. He knew how to touch the hearts of people, and he used the influence he had gained as a minister of the gospel to encourage people to invest in his mining business. Ellen White, who was in California near that time, she had plainly told him that he should not uh, get involved in the speculative type of investment. I mean, investment often is speculative, and to invest your money speculatively when you could invest it in heaven where there's no speculation needed, it's not sensible. But Mr. Daniels, Elder Daniels, would... Mentioned that Ellen White had talked to him when he was trying to encourage you to invest, but he entirely misrepresented her. And in fact, he used what she had said as if he was talking to you, he'd say, Ellen White said that this investment is guaranteed to produce. You put a dollar in, you're going to get $3 out. And many people in California put money in E.P. Daniels' investment and the way it goes with those kind of investments, some of them did lose. They didn't all lose. Investments aren't all. E.P. Daniels wasn't a crook. Well, maybe he was, but he was a sincere crook. You know, the kind of person whose memory plays tricks on him and he expresses things the way he wishes they were instead of necessarily the way that they were. So... Remember what I'm telling you? I'm trying to explain to you why the four men in the conference office didn't think very highly of E.P. Daniels. And now you don't think very highly of him either, right? So you can relate to them. But there was more. E.P. Daniels was a gifted speaker, and he knew how to preach about raising children. Now, there's just a few children here. I like children. It's good to see you. And um, E.P. Daniels had children. He preached about raising children, and he did a great job preaching about it. His wife did a good job preaching about how to raise children, but they didn't raise their own children very well. They didn't even follow their own advice. Can you imagine someone saying the importance of warm Christian discipline and a firm hand who at home uses angry sporadic discipline and lets the kids get away with other stuff randomly? Is it possible to say the right thing and do the wrong thing when it comes to raising children? In fact, it's very easy to find the right theory, but it's a, an entirely other thing to apply it. E.P. Daniels messed up on the application step, and he didn't raise his children well. His daughter, when she got old enough to go to school, she ended up going to Snell's Seminary, and uh, that was a dangerous place for Christian young ladies. And um, 
the young man, E.P. Daniel's son, if you put a plate of food in front, in front of him, he would eat what he wanted and then turn his nose in the rest and ask you to cook something else. Just a picky, you know, this was at home with his mom he would do this. Now you might wonder how I know all these things about E.P. Daniels. I'm not related to him. It's because of letters that were written to him, inspired letters that we have on record. You can find them on the CD-ROM. If you, if you wonder what does he mean by the CD-ROM, well, ask me afterwards, but it's, in terms of researching things, it's the CD-ROM. And um, so E.P. Daniels, now you have a similar opinion to him, I'm hoping, as the brethren at the conference office. When they were away on church business, E.P. Daniels came to visit his old church. You know, if you have a pastor that is somewhat popular and then he goes away, it's always nice when he comes back to visit. Has this church always had the same pastor? Have you ever had a pastor before the one you have now? Okay, so you don't have that experience yet. But if the one you have now, if you like him, and if he went away and then after many years came back, wouldn't you be glad to see him? And probably there'd be some special experience. I see you now. Hi. No, I am looking at you. <laughs> a lady who used to be my secretary married someone who used to be my student, and they're, they're in the back here. And, um, but that's not on topic. So E.P. Daniels, when he came to visit, they asked him to take the morning service. It's kind of uh, just off the spur of the moment. I, I gave you his worst traits. They weren't his only traits. I mean, he was a gifted speaker. He did know his Bible. He did know how to touch people's hearts. He was effective at leading people to repent. He knew how to call them to revival. He wasn't afraid to call sin by its right name. And in many ways, he was gifted with oratory. He was an acceptable speaker. So they asked him to preach. I think even people that you like as preachers if you knew everything about them, you wouldn't think as highly of them as you think when all you know about them is how they preach. And for many people, that's what they knew about E.P. Daniels. They knew how he preached, so he preached. That morning in 1885, when he did preach, he prayed, God answered his prayer, he spoke with power, and it led to many persons in the audience making a significant commitment to the Lord Jesus. Those commitments were backed up by some reform. I mean, people making things right, people choosing to go make apologies where apologies are difficult, persons being willing to turn away from sins that they'd held on to secretly for a long time. There was some good fruit to the sermon. And the church asked him if he would speak again in the afternoon. So he did. He spoke in the afternoon, and there was an even greater response. They asked him if he could carry on and speak in the evening and the next day on Sunday, and he said he'd be glad to do it. You know, when you work with God and you see his power, it's very fulfilling. There's nothing quite like seeing God work to make you want to just stay in that avenue. Many persons who get into ministry never leave it for the very reason that E.P. Daniels wanted to stay the next day and preach. It's very fulfilling to work with God. 
The next day, he continued speaking. It went similar to how it had on Sabbath. And they asked him if he would please stay by and do a week of prayer for them as a church. Now, the guy had a job. And he had traveled from quite a distance to come. I mean, quite a distance. It was a little over an hour. Quite a distance to come and speak at this church. But he went that Sunday evening back home, canceled all his appointments for the week, and came back and carried on a revival there at the church. Let me just summarize and say that things got better and better. People began coming to church who had not come in years. Backsliders were reclaimed. People who were married to Adventists began coming to church, and a number of them who seemed like they never had cared about the Three Angels' messages asked if they could join the Adventist church. Some interesting leaders in the community started coming, and one of them joined the Adventist church that week. Also, during this week, when they were having all these meetings, because it wasn't just one meeting a day, it was a pretty continual series of meetings where the Spirit was working, at least that's what E.P. Daniel said it was, the Spirit. Um, They tried to separate some things, because when you have a bunch of brand new and just becoming Adventists, they might not be ready for the same kind of things as people who've been Adventists for like 40 or 50 years and been studious the whole time. And so there was some differentiation going on there where you had one tent for one group and tent for another. And there were some healings that happened during that week. It was midweek when the brethren from the conference office came back and heard about the excitement there in the Fresno area. And they heard who was leading it. And they suspected that it was a fanatical movement. Are you familiar with the word fanaticism? Have you ever experienced fanaticism or watched it? I won't ask if you've watched it where you saw it. But can you understand why the brethren at the conference office might suspect fanaticism? Can any of you understand why they might from what you know already? They did, and when they came onto the grounds of where this revival was happening, when they saw that some things I haven't haven't even told you about, there really was evidence to them of serious fanaticism going on. And they shut down the meetings, told the people to go home, ended them, and sent E.P. Daniels packing, you know, to stop fanaticism from growing and taking over. Fanaticism. What'd you say? We said we need to know the right definition of fanaticism. Fanaticism at that point was spiritualism, which was not of God. Fanaticism has always had a variety of definitions. And in this case, when they thought it was fanaticism, they were concerned because they saw some of the fruits that that looked like religious excitement. That is where people were, because they were so excited, they weren't thinking sensibly. And, and there were some persons that would kind of take a lead in the local church that, I mean, during that week of prayer, that kind of began to take a lead. I don't, let me try to say this again. In your church here, I suppose that you choose elders. I suppose in your church here, you choose deacons. But if things got really excited, some people might choose themselves as elders. And some people might choose themselves as deacons. 
I mean, when things are really excited, you can in some way choose yourself. You just stand up, start talking, and if people listen to you, you have an audience. You understand what I mean by choose yourself? And when things are excited, there are always personalities who come to the front, who would have always liked to have come to the front, but they never got an invitation to. But when, there's, when things are happening, when the spirit moves them, they move. That's a spirit with a lower uppercase S, depending on how you see the situation. So the thing was cut down. And Ellen White's comments about that story are worthwhile for you to study yourself. But I'm going to summarize to you some of them, and then we're going to have a Bible study about relevant to this topic. God uses weak men. Do you know that? He uses Samson. And Samson, however strong he was, was also weak. Would you agree? Very strong and very weak at the same time? Why, that describes lots of people. Many times God uses men who are exceeding strong and exceeding weak at the same time. God uses erring people. Do you know that? He uses people who make big blunders and mistakes. Uh, The truth is that Peter in the Bible is an erring man. He makes blunders and mistakes. He ends up saying to Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. When Jesus is talking about the gospel story of the cross in prophecy, God uses men who make mistakes. God even holds the the mighty weak people he uses, he holds them accountable. Did God use the King Saul? He used him. Was was Saul weak? Why? He was weak from beginning to end. When he knew he was weak, he was better off than when he didn't know he was weak. But he was weak the whole time. And God used him. Does God hold people accountable who are weak? The fact that God uses you is not a... The fact that God uses me does not get me off the hook in terms of accountability. I can't say since God is using me, I have a free pass. But God uses weak, erring people. He holds them accountable, and he holds the audience accountable. Think about Balaam. Did God expect Balaam to listen to his donkey? He did. And God expects you and I to listen to Balaam. Now, you might be thinking, what do you mean to listen to Balaam? Do you have Bibles handy? Turn to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, and looking at verse 5. I'll give you longer for minor prophets. Micah 6, verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Suppose that you want to know about the righteousness of the Lord. Is there a story that you're referred to by the prophet Micah? And what story would it be? Uh, 
Balak requesting Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam's response, right? And that says in verse 5, what, ba- what Balaam answered? It says, pay attention to what Balaam answered. If you, if you want to know what? The righteousness of the Lord. Well, let me explain that to you briefly. If you would go back in your Sabbath afternoon and read what Balaam answered as he went from place to place, you would find several fascinating statements coming from his lips. Everything he said was true. But when he looked down at Israel, he said, I have not beheld iniquity in Israel. Now, don't think for a minute that Israel was two million people with perfect characters. The history leading up to that and the history immediately following shows that Israel was a couple million very faulty people. But what did Balaam say? I have not beheld iniquity in Israel. Balaam said, the shout of a king is among them. But this was long before they chose a king. Who was the king? That was King Jesus. Jesus was among the people. And when Jesus was amongst them, all Balaam could see was holiness. He said, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? If you want to understand the righteousness of the Lord, you ought to follow what Balaam said to Balak as he went from place to place. That's what Micah says, and I agree with Micah. But let me make my point. God expects, he holds us accountable for what Balaam says, even if Balaam is a shady character. Even if the messenger himself has weaknesses and errors, even if the messenger himself is is lost, I think Balaam was lost. Even in that case, we're held accountable for the truth God teaches through an erring man. What I'm trying to show you, or trying to summarize for you, are the things that Ellen White had to say about the revival led out by E.P. Daniels. More than that, what she said is that it was a true revival. The Daniels, the Daniels revival there in 1885 was of God. Then what was it that led Jones and Wagner and Wagner and Lothborough to make that faulty action, to do that wrong thing. It was because they were getting confused between the faulty messenger and the user of, and the Lord himself. They were looking at the messenger and assumed because the messenger was so faulty, therefore the Lord couldn't use him. And I think by story I've already shown you that that's not legitimate. That God, the fact that God uses you is no evidence that you are a faultless character either. There are many people who think they're okay because God uses them. And I just want you to understand that does not follow. It's not sensible to believe that just because God uses you that everything's okay with you. But there was more. Revivals do not take away free will. And if in this church here, if today we have a great revival, that great revival, though it could lead to a number of people having a soft heart, a revival of spiritual interest, though it could lead to something powerful, that revival would not stop some others here from doing wicked or fanatical things. 
In fact, Elmont's comments are pretty clear that whenever there is a great revival, Satan will certainly take advantage of that to move fanatical people to come to the front. In other words, true revival is going to have associated with it fanaticism. They're going to come together. So when Martin Luther is teaching the truth, Thomas Munzer is going to stand up. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay. But I just, I'm talking about the 16th century. You know Martin Luther, the, re, the reformer. His great preaching was a spark that led Satan to raise up an equally gifted fanatic who had quite an impact on Germany. What was Satan's effort there? It's to associate the fanaticism with the teaching so that either people will love the fanaticism or hate both the teaching and the fanaticism. In other words, by the association, Satan hopes to win two ways. Those that hate the Reformation, he hopes that they will fault it for what happened. And those that love it, he hopes that they will move into fanaticism themselves. Can you see where the, the benefit to Satan in, in combining fanaticism with revival? So when you come to 1844, the Advent movement, that was a powerful revival there in New England, but it had in its presence a number of fanatical elements. Was it because Adventism leads to fanaticism? No. It's because Satan takes advantage of true revivals as an opportunity to bring in fanatical elements. I guess what I'm saying is that if you have a revival here, you need to be thinking. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. Is that you follow what I'm saying? And if you have a something bad happen here in terms of fanaticism, that's not evidence that everyone who's affected by it has had a false experience. But we're going to have to learn to think a step deeper. It's not like that the weeds and the tares are like in different gardens. I think you understand what I'm trying to say. The last thing I want to mention to you from Ellen White before we go into our Bible study is that the latter rain is coming. The greatest revival ever. And when it comes, there are going to be manifestations of serious spiritual interest. But Satan is not going to pass by the latter rain and just let it go without any efforts to frustrate what God is doing. There will be even more fanatical elements raised up during the latter rain than there were in 1844. Even grosser fanaticism. And if you have a mindset like Wagner and Wagner and Jones and Lothborough in 1885, you are going to reject the latter rain. Why? Because you'll recognize the fanaticism. Now, I hope that you're not going to take what I say to an extreme, and now anytime you see fanaticism, assume it must be part of a true revival. It's not like that, that all fanaticism is evidence of revival. Okay, well, that's enough. Let's have a Bible study. 
Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17. This is a major prophet, so you should be there now. Verse 5. That wasn't nice for me to say. It's possible that you could not be there for many reasons. All right. Is that Jeremiah 5? 17, verse 5. 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusts in man, and makes flesh his arm, whose heart departs from the Lord. It's not sensible nor safe for you to connect your spiritual dependence to a man, not to any set of them or to one in particular. You know, the Fresno Church, when, they, when their pastor moved away, they decided that they wanted to have E.P. Daniels come be their pastor again. And Ellen White wrote to the church and said that was a big mistake. This is the same Ellen White who said that it had been a true revival. But she wrote to the church that they were making the same mistake that Jones and Wagner and Wagner and Loughborough made. It was just the the flip side of the coin. But they were crediting the revival to the man. When it wasn't the man, it was the Spirit of God. And that in crediting it to the man, they would actually, they would harm the man himself and encourage him in a way of thinking that was unhealthy in every respect. One reason God uses weak men is because they're not so inclined to think highly of themselves. But you know, if you praise weak men enough, even they'll think highly of themselves. And it's just not sensible to trust in men. Do you see in the end of verse five, the result of trusting in men? Whose heart does what? Departs from the Lord. It is a natural result of depending on men that you lose your connection to God. I sit on this committee that you've heard of, the Theology of Ordination Study Committee, TOSC for short. And I can see when I'm on that committee the danger of our church concluding that because a man has a PhD, that his theological opinions are safer than the man who has none. Now, people who don't have PhDs naturally will say amen, but is there anyone here that has a PhD that will say amen? Well, Maybe no one has a PhD here. That might might be the problem. I was hoping there'd be someone. I know a number of men with a PhD who will say it's true. They'll say that, that getting a higher degree doesn't make you more accurate. It just makes you more stubborn. So that a person who is Baptist before he begins his theology of degree is still a Baptist when he finishes. And the man who is a Catholic when he starts is still a Catholic when he finishes. But the difference is when he finishes, he's harder to lead away from Catholicism than he was before he started. I'm not even trying to put down higher education, even if it sounds like it. 
Because I know a number of highly educated people who are as spiritual as any plumber that you know. The higher education is not what destroys them. But I'll tell you what endangers them is when men depend on them. It's when men latch onto them as if they are the source of light and truth. Cursed is the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm, whose heart departs from the Lord. If you're good at math, listen for the next three minutes. If you're bad at math, just think about what I've said earlier. The number of demons in the world is static. That is, it is not increasing over time. The number of humans is growing exponentially. That is, it is increasing over time. And its increase in the last 150 years is far more than its increase in the previous 3,000 years. The, the curve, we're at a very steep part of the curve right now in the population of the earth. So that if, I'm not claiming to know anything about the number of demons in the world, but if there was one demon per man in the year 1800s, right now there's going to be six men for every one of those demons. It really is getting more difficult for demons to man the planet. Did that make any sense to you what I just said? Yeah. But it's not like things are getting better because of that. Because the devil saw this coming. And he has been working for a long time to lead men to depend on men. He leads you to trust in someone else. He, used, he leads you to depend, to be guided. If he can just lead all of us to depend on someone else, he doesn't have to man everybody. He can just focus on the ones who are the dependents of everybody else. What I'm trying to say is that you know, I've forgotten the name of the man who invited me to come here who's in Vietnam right now. What's his name? Pastor Mike Farley. Yes, Pastor Mike. I don't know him at all. He seems like a nice guy from the telephone. <laughs> but if you depend on Mike, it's like you're putting a target on him for a demonic attack. It's not in Mike's interest for you to depend on him. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? Yes, sir. And um, so that's one thought. And I'm going too slow. I wrote down nearly 30 passages, and we've looked at two of them. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. This is Paul speaking. And does he have the ability to use oratorical skill? Yes. Paul can do it. But when he comes to Corinth, he says, I don't do it. Verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 2, don't understand verse 2 like this. Paul doesn't say, I determined to be highly ignorant on every other topic. But when you put verse 1 and 2 together, he's saying, I didn't try to use my other knowledge to prove how smart I was. I didn't try to do the way that 
the wise people of the world do and try to use a fancy vocabulary to, to indicate that I have a breadth of knowledge or that I'm reliable as a teacher. Verse 3. And I was with you in, what does he say? In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul doesn't have to be in weakness. Paul can speak with great confidence. He can speak without trembling. But he had something in mind. He didn't want the Corinthians to depend on him or on man in general. Look at verse 4. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. In other words, if you preach with oratorical skill, you can really entice an audience to trust you. But Paul didn't use that method. But instead, with the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why, Paul, did you not use the power of oratory when it is so useful in enticing people? Look at verse 5 for the reason. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the do you see the natural relation of this passage to Jeremiah 17? Paul knew that he was going to teach the truth, but if he taught the truth in a certain way, people might believe the truth and trust in man at the same time. And would that be a great gain? It would be a greater gain if they believed the truth and didn't have a very much, they weren't tending to trust in man. I didn't want to say distrust Paul. Paul wasn't trying to lead the people to distrust him. He was trying to disappear out of the equation. He wasn't trying to prove his unreliability. He was trying to be a clear channel so that you know what's true because you know that God says it. You know it's true because you see it, not because that guy, you should just have heard what he had to say. Wow, that was impressive. Not that, but the Bible. Turn back to Acts 19. Acts 19 introduces an issue about fanaticism that I want to bring up. Fanaticism is an extreme danger for us as Seventh-day Adventists. I say it is an extreme danger on two accounts. It's extremely dangerous because we're inclined to go for it. If we've never had any supernatural experience, if you've been living kind of a Laodicean life without any spiritual excitement in your life at all, without any zeal or any real burden or, or anything, if you're kind of just coasting dead in the water, and then fanaticism comes along, it can feel to you as much more spiritual than anything you ever had before. Because you're contrasting death with vibrant death. And when you contrast the dead death with the vibrant death, you feel much better about the vibrant version. But that's why fanaticism takes a certain class of people. But then it's very dangerous for the other reason we already mentioned. 
And that is that where you see fanaticism, you could be tricked to pour out the baby in the bathwater together. You could be tricked to back away from the real thing that God is doing. So that by the use of fanaticism, Satan can trouble almost everyone if we aren't aware, if we aren't thinking things through and moving carefully. Are you in Acts 19? Acts 19 and verse 11. I, yeah, that's it. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. This is not normal Christianity in operation. It's not even normal in the book of Acts. This is the, well, there's something like this about Peter earlier in the book of Acts, but those two stories are unique. I mean, it's not the way it goes typically in the book. But it is there. And where God is really working in some situations and some locations, it may be in God's order to go ahead and do real miracles like he did at the revival in 1885, where some real people were healed. Real miracles can still be done by godly people. Not at will. I mean, anyone who tries to prove his legitimacy by doing a miracle has just proven his illegitimacy. But there are such things as real miracles. Now look at the next verse. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven of one, sons of one Sceva, a Jew, the chief of the priests, which did so. I think you might know the story. But they end up leaving wounded and improperly dressed. I know what Satan wants to do in that situation. He wants to say, see what the fruit is of Paul's preaching. It leads to fanaticism. Well, yes and no. Fanaticism did take advantage of the situation that was caused by the power of Paul's preaching. But it's not the fault of Paul's preaching. They go together organically. That is, they belong together because of the way God works and Satan follows up but they don't belong together in a sense of cause and effect. It's not because of what Paul does that the fanaticism happens, but it's naturally going to be in Earth's history that where one happens, the other is likely to follow. They go together here, like they go together in many places. Do you understand what I'm trying to show you here in Acts 19? Yes. When the Bible speaks about miracles in your day, and it does it in many places. I'm thinking of Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, Revelation 16, Revelation 19. When the Bible talks about miracles in our day, it's Matthew 7. It's usually to warn us against their influence. We're warned that in our day, miracles are going to be used to lead people astray. Miracles are going to be used, and people are going to claim the miracles as evidence that they're going the right direction. 
What I'm trying to show you, and what you'll find attested in Ellen White's writings, is Satan doing that does not handicap God. And God also will do some miracles. Which means that you're going to have to have some better method of telling true revivals from false ones than looking to see if there are miracles. Because the miracles aren't going to do it. The miracles could be there if it's a true one. They could be there if it's a false one. Both types of miracles could be there at the same time. We've never been told to judge revivals on the basis of miracles. You follow? There's a chapter in that beautiful book called The Great Controversy. It's chapter 27. It's called Modern Revivals. And it gives a better way to judge revivals. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33 and verse 14. What I'm trying to show you in the Bible is evidence of the best way to judge a true revival from a false one. Ezekiel 33 and verse 14. Again, when I say unto the wicked that you shall surely die, if he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge and give again what he has robbed, if he walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he will not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be mentioned unto him, he has done that which is lawful and right. He shall surely live. It's a beautiful verse. True revival is evidenced by practical changes in the lives of an audience. People who've done the wrong things start doing the right things. People who have wrongs to make right make the wrongs right. People who have stolen give again they make it, they return what they've stolen. Revival is evidenced by practical holiness in the lives of the people. The practical holiness is such evidence of God's working that wherever you see it, you can say God is working. Even if you can't have any confidence that Balaam or E.P. Daniels is a godly man. Satan is not the one leading people away from sin. Now, I hope you'll not follow this further than I'm hoping you will. When you see people turning away from sin and, and loving the truth and moving forward with the three angels' messages, when you see that work happening, does that give a free pass to the teachers? Whatever they say, you should believe it? Cursed is the man who trusteth even in a legitimate revivalist. God doesn't give any free passes to his agents. When you see revival, you can praise God for the revival and even invite God to revive your own heart without accepting hook, line, and sinker everything you see connected with it. Holiness is worthwhile no matter what Satan plugs into it. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, 
And we're going to look at verse 17. After verse 17, you find a passage that reminds you of Christ's second coming. It sounds in many ways similar to Revelation chapter 6 when it describes Christ's coming. But we're going to start in verse 17. And the loftiness of man will be bowed down. The haughtiness of man will be made low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. That is a principle that ought to guide us in how we relate to revival and to fanaticism. The haughtiness of man, we want no part in it. There in verse 17, the pride of man is something to be shunned. God is going to bring it low. Just to save time, let's just skip over the experience of people throwing their gold to the moles and the bats. And look at verse 21. To go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth. Verse 22, if you have a King James Bible, it's going to sound like mine. If you have a new King James, it's going to sound different. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. The new King James says something like, cease from such a man or don't listen to such a man. Well, I just want to tell you that in this particular passage, the King James has it better than the New King James. It's not a particular man that you should not depend on. It's men in general. Who did we read in verse 17 should be exalted in that day? The Lord alone, right? And the word alone means not any man. So man whose breath is in his nostrils, that describes any man, not a particular one. That's not the one to put your dependence on. I'm sure that wasn't very good English, but you understood the sentence, didn't you? Wherein is he to be accounted of? The answer is not much. When E.P. Daniels leads out in a revival, praise God for the revival. Don't praise E.P. Daniels for the revival. If fanaticism happens... Don't blame God for the fanaticism. Maybe don't even blame E.P. Daniels for the fanaticism. Blame the devil for the fanaticism. God uses weak men, and the devil uses unconsecrated men. There is a difference between weak and unconsecrated. There's a difference between struggling and... I'm fishing for that word that means actor in Greek. Hypocritical. Let me say that as a sentence. You're not a hypocrite on the basis of your struggles. If you're in a church like this and you believe that it's wrong to do such and such, but you struggle with that, that struggling doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you, it proves that you're a weak person. It shows your need for God. It shows the importance of you being faithful to the end and the importance of God forgiving you 70 times 7. It shows maybe that you ought to counsel with someone that can give you some guidance in this business of practical victory over sin. But struggling doesn't make a hypocrite out of a man. A hypocrite is one who is acting. In fact, Jesus is the one who began to use the word hypocrite in a negative sense. 
Prior to Jesus, young people might have said in Palestine, I want to grow up and be a hypocrite. It was just the Greek word for actor. There are people right here in Portland that want to grow up and be hypocrites. They're the same people who say that they don't want to be Christians because they don't want to be hypocrites. But they don't get it. What Jesus was saying is that actors cause lots of problems in Christianity. Those are unconsecrated elements, elements who are not humbling themselves before God in prayer, not turning away from their sins. They're, it's the actors who have something to fear in the judgment. I don't mean struggling people have nothing to fear, but I mean they have something to hope for. God helps struggling people. Peter struggles, James struggles, John struggles, but they made it. The actors were the ones who stood in the street corners and prayed and did what they could to try to get attention. It didn't go as well for them. I stop in four minutes. So, I don't want to take from my next message. So I just want to pick one more thing and share it with you and be done. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And we're looking at verse 9. I don't know you as a church. I know Lisa and Raphael. I don't know if they attend here routinely, but I don't know the rest of you. So it's possible that in this church are some anti-Trinitarians. It's possible they're here. There might be some feast keepers. I doubt there's any lunar Sabbatarians because there's only a one in seven chance that today is a lunar Sabbath. Um, But it's possible that there are some fanatics here. By the way, I think of fanaticism. If you're one of those, I don't think you should just trust me that you're a fanatic because I said something like that. Are you in Hebrews 13? Yes, sir. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, and not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Let me unpack this verse a bit. Of course, you know Hebrews is the book that introduces spiritual milk as opposed to spiritual meats. That's in the end of Hebrews 5, the first part of Hebrews 6. Spiritual milk, those are the first principles. Things like baptism, repentance from dead works. The laying on of hands, interestingly, is part of spiritual milk, even though we know so little about it today. But it was part of the fundamentals there in Hebrews 5. And what Paul says in Hebrews is we ought to move on from those things that we already know onto meat. Well, here in the end of the book, he clarifies that not everything that goes beyond the first principles is healthy. Not every meat is useful. Are there strange meats? There are. And it's not sensible to allow them to carry you around. It sounds like they're kind of windy, doesn't it? These strange, these strange meats. He says, don't be carried about with strange doctrines. Now notice what he says because he lumps them together. He says, which have not profited them that have been exercised thereby. 
In other words, these strange doctrines really motivate their promoters. They really get them going. If you have a new strange doctrine that rises today, the Hebrews 13.9 variety of strange doctrine, you can bet that whoever originates it and whoever buys into it, it's going to be important to them. Let me say this to you practically. I have yet to meet someone who believes in the lunar Sabbath who thinks it's an unimportant issue. I have yet to meet someone, well, that's not quite true, but it's almost true. I've yet to meet a a large, like, it's rare to meet someone who has an anti-Trinitarian view who does not think that it is like the significant thing to know for today. What do you see in Hebrews 13.9 about strange doctrines? What do they do? They move people about. And is it sensible to allow yourself to be moved about with them? Verse 9 says no. Now, again, I'm not asking you to trust me on which are strange doctrines. And I can just imagine that someone sitting here is almost boiling right now that I would associate strange doctrines with the things I have. But I want you to see that to practice verse 9 you have to be able to identify which doctrines are strange. Do you see that? That to practice verse 9, you have to have some way to do that? If you're not willing to do that painful work of identifying some doctrine as strange, verse 9 becomes useless to you because you can't practice verse 9 without identifying them. Well, verse 9 doesn't give you a lot of qualifications. It gives you a couple. One of them is it blows you around And one of them is, it really motivates you, but it doesn't really help your character. These are doctrines that don't make people more holy. They make them more excited, more religious. Maybe they eat better, but they don't, they're not kinder to their children, more respectful to their parents, more courteous to their neighbors. They are not being profited in practical holiness. And if you see a doctrine that doesn't cause people to profit in practical ways, you don't have to figure out whether it's true or false before you know that it qualifies as strange. Paul doesn't even say that all of these doctrines are false. It's possible... Can I illustrate this without really messing up? I'll illustrate with me. I think that it's best not to eat cheese. I don't eat cheese. If at potluck today you try to feed me cheese, I'll try to find a courteous way to not take advantage of your generosity. But... The fact that I believe it's best not to eat cheese doesn't make that into my fourth angel's message. And if it becomes, for me, the next thing to be preaching about, if it becomes the burden, that is a strange doctrine. That's a poor illustration of what I'm trying to say, but you can stretch it until you find a better application. What I'm trying to say is that maybe the better one is the issue of the Godhead. Because I really think, for example, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, 
that I can make a strong biblical case for the Holy Spirit being a, a person with personality, a divine person, and I could make another case for the Spirit being uh, like God's power or his mind. And I could make both. And no, no matter which one I come to as a conclusion, what's very apparent is it's not the burden of anyone in the Bible to explain it. There's not any passage in the Bible designed to explain it. It's not the message. So that even if I land on the right side of that question, but I end up making it into the message, I am making a strange doctrine that can blow people around. And I really am making a mistake. So that's Hebrews 13.9. The summary of all that I've said today is take heed how you hear. That there are going to be tests coming in the future that are going to require a higher level of thought than what we have used so far. If we're not right now cultivating holiness, if we're not working with the Spirit and submitting to the Spirit in a daily way, we are not likely to recognize the Spirit when it's moving somebody else. And if we don't recognize the Spirit when it moves someone else, we're likely to be offended by what happens. And if we're offended and we back away, we're likely to reject the great work of the Spirit and even miss out on the latter rain. If we miss out on that, it is a terrible thing. And in the judgment, we can't even blame it on the fanaticism that Satan associates with that. We're going to be held accountable for the truth that came our way, despite the agents or the, addition, or the characters of the people who might have been in the neighborhood when, the, when we heard the truth. I hope you understood it, but supposing that you're not an auditory learner, that when someone just lectures like I'm doing, you just like, you hear it and you lose it and you hardly comprehend it. There is a website, bibledoc.org, that has an article called Fanaticism and an article called E.P. Daniels and Fanaticism, two articles, and you can read it. And I guarantee if you read it, you'll find more inspired data than you'll ever hear in the lecture. And you can go through it slowly and underline if you print it out. That'll just be better for at least one-third of you who don't learn so well by lectures, but come to church anyway, bless you. you there is plenty you can read there. Yeah, yeah the Bible, B-I-B-L-E. Then the next three letters after Bible are D-O-C dot O-R-G. It stands for Bible document, but it's just doc, bibledoc.org. All right, if you're able and willing and happy to, kneel with me for prayer, and we'll close. Our Father in heaven, I am thankful that you've given us plenty of warning, and I'm sorry that we are so poorly warned. I ask that you'd find a way to lead us. Find a way to connect us to your spirit in such a way that we'll recognize you when you're working. And I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.